0: First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of NFP, the fifth largest insurance broker in the world, combining local expertise with access to global capabilities and solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com. They're
1: Moscato wines and we use fruit juice and extracts with um, cherry, cherry and blueberry to flavor them and they just have a lot of different uh, aspects to them that customers have really responded
0: to. The sweet taste of success at Indiana's mm-hmm. oldest and largest wine producer, Oliver Winery in Bloomington. Business is booming thanks to those cherry and blueberry moscados. What started in an IU law professor's basement 50 years ago has grown into a powerhouse in the wine industry. See how the daughter of a Fort Wayne dentist is carrying out the Oliver Winery mission on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Julie Adams was a kid growing up in Fort Wayne, her dad a dentist, when Bill Oliver started tinkering with making wine in between teaching law at IU. By the time Adams graduated from the IU Kelly School of Business, Oliver had taken his hobby to another level, bought a vineyard, and set up Oliver Winery in 1972. The company has grown exponentially since then. Oliver's products now available in 41 states. And the winery has more than doubled in size in just the last two and a half years. CEO and Allen County native Julie Adams is now the guiding hand behind Oliver. And I'm pleased to welcome her to the podcast this week. Julie, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you today.
0: Yeah, you have been busy. Uh, You and everyone Mm -hmm. at at Oliver have been really busy. You, You know, I think a lot of people know the Oliver name, the Oliver Winery brand, very visible there on, on 37. But I don't think a lot of people know how big you have become. Give us give us kind of a snapshot of Oliver Winery today.
1: Uh, so today we are one of the top 30 wineries in size in the country and really proud about that. There's a list that gets published in our industry every year and making that list has been a big deal uh, for us at the winery. We, we definitely sell a lot of wine out front door of our tasting room where people are familiar and welcome lots of visitors to experience wine tasting in the gardens and such. But then we also uh, send a lot of wine out on semi-trailer trucks to, as you said, 41 states across the country. And um, that part of our business is where we've experienced really dramatic growth in the last many years. And it's come out of having a real focus on some of those sweeter style products and really gaining a foothold with consumers that enjoy them, you know, like that fruit forward, effervescent style and um, have become devoted fans of our wines. So it has been exciting for sure. And it's definitely a team sport. I always say that it is a team sport at Oliver Winery and it has been a really dedicated team across, across the business that has seen us through all of this growth.
0: Yeah, distributed again in 41 states, more than doubled your geographic reach since 2014, and you mentioned sweet, wine. sweet wines. sweet wines—that's really the Oliver sweet spot, if you will, right?
1: Yeah, it is. It's interesting. We make a broad, uh, broad list of wines that we sell in the tasting room, from dry to sweet, and we always have. So, um, the winemaking team certainly uh, works hard at making all kinds of different wines. What we found a number of years ago in the business and in the evolution of the business was we were really looking for a focus as far as as we sought to expand. And, you know, we're not in one of the traditional winery regions, you know, we're not in California. And so uh, we were really strategizing about, you know, what makes sense from that perspective in bringing out a wine that would be accepted more broadly, you know, within the system within which we have to sell to distributors and to retailers, given that we're not necessarily just an obvious uh, California proposition and. We really thought about, you know, where we could fit on the shelf at grocery because that's where we sell a lot of our wines. And the notion of what kind of wines don't have a geographic bias in effect, you know, that 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 thought really resonated with us. Where could we focus where, you know, it would be readily accepted? You know, if we sell an apple pie wine, you know, people don't have a lens about apple pie as a wine. Whereas if I say, you know, would you like to buy this Chardonnay? there might be that idea of well i need to buy those from an outfit that works out of california and we can certainly we we get fruit from all over the us so we can we can get nice california chardonnay fruit and make a really nice chardonnay but we really recognize that if we wanted to go broader we ought to think about you know what what would be a proposition that would make sense strategically and so that's why we ended up really focusing our efforts in the last few years and it's been very successful for us and I always think it really harkens back to our Midwest roots in that we've been around for so long. We've always made it a point to be approachable about how we uh, sell wine. You know, if you come in the door of the tasting room, we welcome everyone there. You know, whether this is the first time tasting wine or they're an aficionado and know a lot about it. We train our staff to welcome everyone to offer a broad range of wines and say, welcome to the wine community. Welcome to our family today. You know, we want to find something that you can enjoy. So that's always been important to us. And the sweeter style wines have, in some regards, been not so much today, but as of eight to 10 years ago, were more ignored by some of the larger players. And we really sought to embrace those, the folks that enjoy those wines and make make wines that, you know, have broad appeal and that all kinds of people can embrace and be part of. And we just think that, you know, from a product perspective, it fits really, really well with who we are. Julie,
0: for those who don't know, give us the abridged version because Oliver Winery, I think, is one of the great Indiana family success stories uh, in terms of uh, building a business from scratch. Those who might not know the the story uh, that I just kind of touched on briefly in the intro, talk about uh, how how Oliver Winery came to be.
1: Yeah, so Professor William Oliver was a tax law professor at Indiana University here in Bloomington, and he was a home ma- home winemaker. You know, his son Bill Oliver, that has led the business for for many years, talks about stomping grapes in the basement with his dad growing up. So so his father started the winery in 1972, and he authored, being a law professor, the Farm Wineries Act in Indiana. So he was part of the establishing of the industry because of his law background. And Bill and Mary Oliver shepherded the winery through its first decade until their son, Bill, graduated in the early 1980s from um, the IU with a business degree. And he decided to pursue it full time. It had been more of a hobby for his parents and a a side business. And Bill decided to pursue it full-time and he always talks about, you know, he really identified at the outset fruit quality and, you know, cleaning the place up and welcoming visitors, you know, was where he started in the early 1980s. But he really made a mark um, in Indiana growing the winery at a more rapid clip with bringing in better quality fruit and bringing better quality the the soft wine collection that probably a lot of folks know about was a bestseller, still is a bestseller for us and has been for decades. And Bill established those wines, and in the 1990s, that decade, he went back to IU, got his MBA, and he always says the best thing he got from his MBA was Kathleen Oliver. He met Kathleen uh, during that time at IU, and the two of them really built up the tasting room business in the 1990s, and they built the timber frame tasting room that we still operate out of today during that time. And they then, toward the end of that decade, got established with distributors here in Indiana that really partnered with them to take the winery um, to, to distributing much more deeply in Indiana. So as we went into the kind of 2000s, we were distributing much more deeply here in Indiana. And um, during that time, we started distributing a little out of state, but really focused on Indiana. And then um, as we got into the 2000, 2009 is when I joined the winery. And that was the time when they were looking at succession planning. And how could they bring up a leadership team? They wanted to step away from the business and focus on some other things. And so um, during the 2010s, we really developed up a leadership team and at that time you know, made the decision that I just spoke about to um, really focus more strongly on sweeter style products and see what we could do to take that proposition more broadly out Mm -hmm. and share wines from Indiana with all kinds of folks across the country.
0: Yeah. So a a big event, new ownership. Now, Oliver's are still in an ownership position, right? Still involved with the winery?
1: They are still involved. Yes. Yep. Bill's Bill's on our board of directors. So Bill is still involved at this point. But we did take on an investment um, from an investment group in 2021, just about one year ago uh, this month. And that was a decision that we made really based on the notion of, as we have gotten larger and we're competing. It's a it's a very consolidated industry in the wine world. The top five wineries sell over half the wines that uh, people buy in grocery stores. They have a big presence where they own many, many brands. And for us, as um, Bill and I were looking at and evaluating with our board of directors that investment, we were really looking at how do we best take the winery forward as it evolves and kind of what's, what's a logical next step and The investment group that we brought on has a couple of um, operating partners and board members that have joined our team. They are on the board of directors, so they're not day to day leading at the winery, but they're part of who we get to consult with and work with week in and week out. And they um, have backgrounds at the highest levels with Anheuser-Busch, with McCarty, with Moy Hennessy, just a number of the really large players in our industry. And it's given us access to. having some you know to that real benefit of Mm -hmm. learning from them you know we're pretty homegrown we're a group of people that kind of rolled up our sleeves and certainly took the winery to a pretty big presence in the industry but having that background and experience for our team has just meant the world as far as you know the competitive nature of of where we where we work day in and day out
0: yeah so you took over as ceo last year 2021 uh it served for president as president for five years or so and i think it's interesting because in, in doing some of the research for our conversation today i i, I came upon uh, you know some data talking about uh, you know a number of years ago the the uh, oliver seemed to be a bit stuck in neutral maybe after some years of really good growth and really a challenge a kind of a turning point and challenging opportunity talk about that and how you and others at the company were able to get, get through that and to get on yeah. more of a growth trajectory.
1: Yeah, so that, um, we've talked a little bit about it, but I can sure fill in some details to tell that story um, more deeply. It We definitely, as we sought to expand outside of Indiana, it really was that, um, what were we going to have as a compelling proposition uh, more broadly? Because we have to sell in the three-tier system, alcohol, post-prohibition. Is all sold from suppliers like a winery or a brewery to a distributor, and then from the distributor to the retailer, and then the retailer to the consumer. So selling selling wine at wholesale for us means working within that system of partnerships. You know, we work very closely with the distributors and then the retailer partners, and having something you know gaining share of mind within that world order is part of what we have to work at, and so. Um, Certainly, a big part of it was that shift in focus on, let's focus on our sweeter style products um, in, in gaining the partnership that we needed. But then the other part of that was it was during a time when the Olivers were stepping further away from the business. And we faced that, you know, that succession moment that a lot of businesses, I'm sure, face. Um, right. You know, the, the driving folks that were really the founders of where we had grown to. Um, we're looking to hand over those reins to a group of us at the winery. and you know what was that going to look like post Bill and Kathleen Oliver being at the winery day in and day out. And so we definitely did some hiring in that time. We hired a few key key leaders in some areas on the sales and marketing front, but then from a culture perspective, we really had to double down on our efforts of what was it going to what was it going to look and feel like to have the voice at the front of the room and the, the leaders at the winery be different? And so we really thought about and brought to the table the notion of um, vision and purpose. What was the winery's vision and purpose and what were our values? And put those into words in a much more, the, the Olivers lived it and we already had the culture at the winery. But how did we put those into words and talk about them day in and day out with our team and you know, rally our team around this is who we are and how we do things. So we ended up really focusing as far as purpose on um, connecting, bringing people together through wine. Um, You know, that notion of wine is about community and connection. It just, it just is. It's always been that way for me. You know, when I think about evenings, if we open a bottle of wine at the dinner table and have friends over, it's about lingering at the table and having a really nice time together. So So we really talk to our teams a lot about that overarching purpose and make sure that everyone across the winery understands that they are such an important part of that purpose, whether they work out at our vineyard, they're in the cellar, they're in the warehouse on a forklift loading trucks, you know, the wholesale team out in the field for us or on the hospitality front lines, thinking about you are a vital part of how we connect people to these lovely bottles of wine that we make you know, we, we really rallied around that. And it's been important. I I have a strong belief in purposefulness, you know, that people mm-hmm. people have better days when they have nice purposefulness about them and helping our team recognize that is super important. And then our core values, Bill Oliver helped draft them and they are very much in his voice. They're pretty simple. They are respect people, expect quality, think differently and get stuff done. Mm-hmm. And we talk about those all the time when we onboard employees we talk about this is how this is the how we do our work and it just helped bring forward you know kind of that dna that was part of our culture we we talk about them at every all employee meeting we celebrate examples of who's living our values in great ways there's just lots of ways that we hearken back to the values at all times you just you'll hear us talk about them frequently if you're an employee at the winery because we really believe in living those out day in and day out. Yeah. So so that was, that was an interesting change for us. You know, it felt a little, I, I know it felt a little um, uncomfortable to some folks at the outset of like, oh, does this feel too big a corporate or something like that? You know, when we had been very founder led on smaller teams. But as we grew, it was, you know, important to identify those things and bring them forth um, with our team day in and yeah. day out. And we worked at that.
0: Yeah, you know, and I can't help but but believe that that Bill Oliver, the Oliver success story, and all of that 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 effort has really been a driving force, a pioneering force in the wine industry, the 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 brewing industry, the distilling now distilling industry in sure. in Indiana that is 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 really growing into into uh, some pretty cool stuff.
1: I know, super exciting, and we're always excited with you know seeing our partners in those. In those brother and sister industries, excel as well. It just is.
0: Yeah. Very good. Well, when we return, Julie Adams' path to the top spot at Oliver Winery, growing up in Fort Wayne. And our parents helped really shape her business mindset in many respects. That's when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of National Financial Partners, the fifth largest insurance broker and consultant in the world. Develop your total reward strategies all in one place with the combination of First Person's local expertise and NFP's global resources and integrated solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week is the CEO of Bloomington-based Oliver Winery, Julie Adams. And Julie, uh, you are a native Hoosier, born in Fort Wayne. And as I understand, you had a very typical Midwestern upbringing. Is that an accurate uh, depiction? Yes,
1: for sure it is. Yeah, I grew up in Fort Wayne, spent all my growing up years there. My parents were born and raised in central Indiana in a farming community, and my dad went off to IU, got a dental degree, and practiced dentistry for over 50 years in Fort Wayne. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom, as all the moms in the neighborhood were in that day and age in the place where I grew up. And we just, we had a really great childhood there. You know, lots of time playing with friends, um, hanging out, reading. I like to read a lot. Yeah. So it was, it was great. Great
0: now, now I always wondered about children of dentists where you could, could <laughs> was it tough to, to get candy?
1: <laughs> it, that's so interesting. It was a little tough. There were definitely <laughs> vegetables. My dad was a big fan of you have to have a carrot after dinner because that would get all the, sh- any kind of sugar that you had in your teeth out of your mouth. So <laughs> at any rate, there was definitely a legacy of that in our household for sure. Yeah.
0: Hey, hey talk about, uh, have you been to Fort Wayne lately? Because you know, growing up there, you certainly have perspective. What is happening up there and has been, I think, for the last number of years is really amazing in terms of the transformation in downtown Fort Wayne, the rivers, uh, so much going on in downtown. It's it's very exciting.
1: So exciting, yes, yeah. We were to a wedding there recently. My parents moved away from there 15 years ago, but we were up for a wedding. I was up for a conference here before last, and it was amazing to see the conference center that's developed up the ballpark downtown the hotels that we were at the Botanical Gardens this fall, which is such a beautiful venue. So super excited to see that for Fort Wayne and to see a thriving downtown in a city of that size. Just, yes, as you say, amazing transformation. It was yep. it was a good downtown when I was growing up there and I think it went through a lull and then they were able to so strongly bring it back and always excited to see that kind of development there.
0: Yeah. IU, you went to uh, you went to school at IU. Was that always the path? Your dad went there. Were you was that a, a given that you were gonna you were gonna head to Bloomington?
1: I interestingly, I started out at Valparaiso University and ended up transferring oh. to IU in my freshman year. And I certainly, though, always followed the Hoosiers. You know, I grew up in the era of basketball success in the '70s and early '80s, and my parents were big sports fans and So knew about Bloomington, had been before, and my older sister was here at the time and all kinds of friends. So it was a great, it was a great path to come here. I started out studying as a teacher. I was going to the school of education and going to be a teacher. And that was what my mom had gone to college Ah. for and done before she had children. And ended up, um, once I got out on the school visits and had a little bit of distance, you know, seeing that maybe necessarily was not the path for me, that I didn't want to spend my time in the classroom every day, all day. And my parents were real supportive of switching majors, which I know a lot of people do. And uh, I ended up going over to the business school and ending up very much enjoying that. I majored in accounting, but at the time, certainly the business school had the integrated, it was novel at that time, certainly an integrated approach where we took lots of classes in finance and marketing and Operations and management and systems and such, and I just I, I guess I'm a competitive person at heart in many ways, and loved everything about the notion of understanding a business from all perspectives and that idea of how do the numbers how can the numbers help the business you know get better results. I was never that into the compliance end of it, but very much thought about the reporting and the how, how does how does the accounting team add to the, yeah. to the bottom line.
0: So. Uh, upon gr- graduation, you worked at some, as I understand, some entrepreneurial businesses in the in the mm-hmm. Bloomington area. How did that experience working in kind of smaller, perhaps more nimble entrepreneurial companies? How did that kind of shape uh, you in your role as CEO today?
1: Interestingly, yeah, I started out in public accounting, which is what a lot of accounting majors do. I worked at the predecessor to BKD here in mm-hmm. Bloomington. Um, That was the one accounting firm of size. And so I had a few years there where you get to see a lot of businesses. You know, you're doing audit and tax work and out at a lot of clients and saw lots of different environments. I was just always really aware of that and ended up taking a job for a small business where, you know, it was I was a controller for the first time and it was my chance to just think about, you know, what kind of what kind of office environment did I did I want to cultivate in my team? And yes, being in. Being in that environment where I had a lot of influence over a smaller team was something Mm -hmm. that appealed to me. And I was certainly, we didn't, call, you know, there was no talk about business culture in that era. It was, I think it was before the millennials showed up in the workforce and kind of helped all of us change our mindset to um, addressing culture more day in, day out. But I sure thought about how could my team have good days, having a positive, you know, optimistic place. Having the accounting team, you know, serve the rest of the business and cultivate that mindset in them of, look, we're overhead here; we're not the front-facing part of this business. How do we support the rest of the team? And I had the ability to have influence over that since it was a smaller team. And we really—I I, even in those days—I thought a lot about how to get the accounting team out there and understanding more about the business. You know, the first business that I worked in, it was a security guard business, security alarms, and building services and call center services we provided to businesses. And I always worked at getting the team members out there to meet the managers in the field, know, you know, go on a call with an alarm tech and understand what it's like to install or troubleshoot an alarm so that, you know, I thought about it in terms of they were the ones processing the transactions, and it was important for them to have context about what they were doing every day, but also just the notion of they needed to have relationships with their team members broadly, you know, and, and just be connected in that way to the broader organization, mm-hmm. you know, that yeah. that would, that would be more meaningful for them in their jobs for sure.
0: Yeah. In, in terms of where you learned leadership, leadership lessons, I, 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 it seems to me that you learned a lot from your parents and and kind of how they led by example. Uh, I, I know you, you talk about whatever you do, do it with excellence. Quality results matter. How much of an influence, from a leadership standpoint, did you derive from your uh, from your parents uh, growing up?
1: Yeah, they had a really strong presence in my sister and my life, lives together for sure. And. It's interesting. And, you know, you kind of look back in it and and understand better with some distance just how how strongly they imbued their values in this. My mother, she was, you know, in, in her era, she didn't work, but she was very much all about hospitality. And today working in the hospitality business, that comes home to roost for sure. She was very artistic. She always had Really wonderful celebrations, holidays, birthdays, any of that. Everybody liked to come to my mom's events because they were wonderful. And having that kind of hospitality DNA as part of growing up was important. My mom also really strongly cultivated gratitude in us. She she had a practice, if it was the day after the holidays or the day after our birthday, we would want to go play with our friends and show them new toys and and do those (laughs) things. And She had a notion of no, no, you were going to sit down at the table. The first thing you had to do was put together the list of who gave you what and who you were going to be writing the thank you notes to, and then just sit there and write notes. And I had terrible handwriting and we would get into (laughs) tussles over that. But, you know, we didn't get to get up and get on with our day until we had written those notes. And, you know, you think about cultivating gratitude, it's about saying thank you to the person that has done something nice for you, but it's also about, you know the place that you get to internally yourself when you're in a place of expressing gratitude, and that is so important. And you know that carries forward to this day. I, I write lots of notes to teams, you know, team members at the winery when when they're doing important work and things that should be noted. And we talk a lot about thank yous um, in any meetings that I'm in, and it's it's just been a fantastic thread through life that has served me well as a leader for sure. And then um, the other thing that I think about with my parents, it it wasn't spoken of so much, but it was the way they lived was they were super purposeful and intentional about their life. You know, my husband has said to me before that they are having gotten to know them over decades. Now they're the most kind of intentional folks. He knows as far as what they set out to do and the adult life that they that they crafted for themselves and how it worked out so well for them. As far as my dad was in a career, he really liked, he worked for over 50 years, you know, into his seventies, because he always just said, you know, what would I do with my days? I like getting up and helping people with their teeth and hooray for him finding that and having that in his life for all those years. My parents both golfed together just all the time. They were pretty fanatical about that. They liked to watch sports. They, they just had cultivated, they liked history and um, travel and, the arts and culture. And we just watched them, you know, and their life unfold in this nice way by being thoughtful about how did they want to spend their days and what was going to make for good days. And that is what I think has really carried through with how I think about the workplace. And, you know, I always tell our teams, my goodness, we spend more time together than we do in a week with our families, really, when you Uh think about the hours that we put in and there is such an importance to that for me in we need to bring decency and our best selves to that effort every day and how we undertake things you know we get to choose you know how how we come to the to the workplace every day and interact and what let, let's find ways to be decent together and encouraging and um optimistic with one another and have kindness so those things came through loud and clear even though they weren't necessarily you know these held forth business lessons in leadership, those kind of things shape who you are and they shape, you know, where your prospects are in, in your, in your daily approach. So so they had a big influence in those ways. Yeah.
0: How how has COVID, how has the pandemic these last two years changed that from a leadership standpoint, workplace standpoint, uh, all the things you talked about, uh, certainly the the pandemic has changed that. What's your view on that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it you know at Oliver Winery it's been super interesting in that a little over half of our workforce serves on either our hospitality team or our manufacturing cellar warehouse, you know, agricultural team at the vineyard. And so for all those folks, you know, that in order for them they have to do their work on site, you know, they don't have remote ability to do their work. And so for us during the pandemic, our number one priority was people that could work at home, work at home so that we had as few people on site, certainly at the outset as as were needed, so that we could be as safe as we could be for those teams, you know, and coming together, we really rallied our full teams around look, there are different circumstances in different areas, and we don't, we've never been through this. We don't know where this is headed. We need to take whatever good information we have and create as safe of conditions as we can for our teams that have to work on site. So I hope to think we were successful at that and that appealing to folks, you know, broader goodwill toward toward each other was, was a good approach. And it really helped us see through, you know, heating regulations and changes in policy and all that. And then for our remote team, we certainly were all remote for a certain amount of time, but working at the winery, you know, there's a culture at the winery and being on site and being part of the operation that happens on site is a part of working for the winery. And so we've really moved to more hybrid kind of model for those that can be remote. Um, We can be remote for a day or two a week, and then we're at the winery for the other days. And we try to have that. We have a few people that are full-time remote just because of finding good people in certain roles, and they're not in Bloomington, Indiana, and they contribute in, in powerful ways. But but otherwise, we're there at least part of the time. And that's that's been a good kind of middle ground landing place for us today.
0: Yeah. This is a big year for Oliver, 50 years uh, since the founding of the company. So obviously, this is a mm-hmm. year to to reflect on uh, a lot of great things that have happened over the decades, but also perhaps to look ahead as you look at what's next uh, for Oliver. A lot of growth here these last couple of years, to be sure. What can we expect to see uh, from Oliver here in these uh, these next several years?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, for sure you will keep seeing innovation. Innovation has been a hallmark for us. We, we've always thought differently about products and product categories, and we'll be thinking about, you know, what, what can we bring forward that will surprise and delight, you know, folks that enjoy our wines or new folks to enjoy our wines? So we'll be working on product innovation for sure. And then um, continuing to really double down on that growth that we talked about. You know, we we have nice growth here, but there are so many more places where we could we could take forth our wines and folks could enjoy them. So we will be working on that for sure while while we open the doors seven days a week at the winery to welcome, you know, visitors that come
0: there. So, all right. Very good. Julie Adams, the CEO at Oliver Winery. Julie, it's been a real treat to uh, have you join me on the podcast. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Spring is in the air here. Uh, Great time to be down in Bloomington and visit Oliver. Mm -hmm. And we'll look to do that uh, in the future. Thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It was a good
0: conversation. I appreciate it. All right. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. It is a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download all of our episodes, plus get Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to insideindianabusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.